Hello everyone, welcome to A Reason for Hope. We're glad that you're joining us. A Reason for Hope is an hour-long live broadcast which is guided for the most part by your questions on the Bible. So if you have questions on the Bible, maybe a verse or passage of scripture, maybe even something you're going through in your life, you'd like a biblical perspective, maybe even other religions and worldviews, really any honest question, as long as you know we're going to delve into the Bible to find those answers, that's what we're all about here. And you can send your questions in through various online platforms, which I'll be explaining to you in a moment. But we're very glad that you found us and are joining us. My name is Dave Robson. I'll be your host today. And like I said, literally fielding those questions as they come on in live. With us today, Sean Richards and Peter Martin, both pastors here at Calvary Christian Fellowship. How are you guys doing? Good. 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 Yeah. <laughs> you never yeah. ask us at the same time. No, I know. disorienting. I thought I would <laughs> to see who, who would speak first. Or speak at all it's good we're on mostly video now because if you don't say anything then it's uh i think my i did a radio show once my first time and i and i just kind of nodded and the guy's like if you don't say anything they can't hear what you're because <laughs> it's on the radio anyway yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so good job there'll be a lot of talking believe me um well as i mentioned reason for hope is a live broadcast we're with you monday through friday 5 to 6 p.m mountain standard time we're based here in uh, <clears throat> tucson arizona don't be fooled by my accent we are in Tucson, Arizona, in the Wild West, <laughs> down here. Um, it's an outreach of Calvary Christian Fellowship here in Tucson. If you're looking for a home church, you're very welcome to come and visit us. We're in the Prince and I-10 area, just on the west side of the freeway there. Uh, but if you go to our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com, if you go to that Watch Live tab, that will take you to our live page, where you can see our services here at Calvary Christian Fellowship Live, but also a reason for hope. Um, if we're live, if we're currently live, you'll see the video there. You can sign in with a username of your choice, and then you can be part of the chat there, and I'll be chatting along with you. Um, when we're off air, you'll see a countdown to our next show and a schedule of upcoming events. Like I say, a Reason for Hope shows, services here at Calvary Christian Fellowship, and other events that we do. So that's the place to go for all those live events through our website. ccftucson.online.church is the direct link, or again, just follow the link from our website. You can join us on Facebook as well, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson or facebook.com slash CCF Tucson. Don't forget to, to like and share if you've been blessed by this ministry. We'd love to reach as many people as we can. So share us around. Don't keep us a secret. We'd appreciate that. That's another way that you can send your questions in. Once again, I'll be monitoring those as we go along. Uh, we have an app as well for your mobile device, whether it's iPhone or Android or your iPad. And we also have a channel on Roku and Apple TV as well. So if you have a smart TV or a uh, Roku stick or one of those devices, you can download our channel. Look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson in your app store or your channel store, and you will find us there as well. On uh, YouTube, the channel is called A Reason for Hope. So look for A Reason for Hope on YouTube. That's a great place to go for archives, all the uh, live shows, and, and thank you, Peter. The other day, you reminded us if you go to that live tab that you see there, um, that's where you'll find the archive of our live shows, uh, the home and the videos are more the uploaded videos. But you can look back on past shows if you missed them or you want to recap a question. And also our services here at Calvary Christian Fellowship, they are all there as well. So that's a great place to go for your archive. <laughs> Sound like a seal archive or to watch live of course we're live there as well and once again don't forget to like and share and subscribe and click the bell so you're notified when we're live you get a notification just a obnoxious uh notification on your phone that we're live and you can join us 
uh, youtube.com slash at reason for hope 546 or just search for a reason for hope like a reasonable person don't be typing that link in who would do such a thing nobody's got time for that you can follow our senior pastor here scott richards he's not with us today he's usually with us monday wednesday friday on the show he's on twitter scott r4h that's scott r number four letter h letter r number four letter h scott <laughs> h i still haven't perfected how to say that I have partial dyslexia and it confuses me. Give it a couple of years. You'll Give it a couple of years <laughs> and I'll have it down. Uh, but he posts uh, highlights from the show. He posts um, uh, commentary on like, world events, uh, things going on in the news and around the world, prophetic things, things from a biblical and prophetic uh, perspective. There's so much going on, as you know, in the world that relates to end times and prophecy and those kind of things. So I know for me personally, um, Scott is one of my main sources of all of these things. I trust him to uh, be telling me the truth and the biblical perspective. So if you follow him on Twitter, um, that's a great way if you're uh, so inclined to get those kind of updates. And last but not least, questionsforhope at gmail.com is our email address. That's questionsforhope, all spelled out, at gmail.com. You can email us there anytime. Of course, during the show, I'll be monitoring those too. If you're listening on the radio, you are listening to... Uh, our previous show, our last show, usually yesterday's show, pre-recorded. Uh, so you'll want to use that email address and we'll get to those questions on our next show. So thank you once again. Get your questions in early. Sometimes we do run out of time. These guys, you know, they chat like a pair of old ladies and uh, we run out of time. So get your questions in early and uh, we'll get to as many questions as we can. Well, all that being said, Sean Peter, thank you for making yourself available for questions. Thank you for your diligence in the word and your gifting that you're bringing to the show. And um, before we go any further, we always like to pray. So, Peter, would you like to pray? Yes, I would. That'd be great. <laughs> Good. I'll turn you down one of these days. Yeah, no, <laughs> no, thank you. Can you imagine? Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, Father, we're very thankful to be here today. We're thankful for all the wonderful things you're doing in our life. And we're thankful for your sovereignty and your control over the world and the events that are surrounding us. We're thankful that we could rest in that and your uh, perfect plan and your perfect will. I do pray for this uh, current time that we have together where we get to talk about your word and answer these questions that both me and Sean would speak in a way that would honor your word, honor your truth, and that those listening would be blessed as a result. And in your name, mm. amen. 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 Well, often on Thursdays, you guys give a bit of a book recommendation. Did you have a book that you wanted to share and recommend today? Yes. Uh, our book this week will be I Do Not Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist by Norman Geisler and Frank Turek. Frank Turek, for those of you who may have listened to this broadcast before, note that is uh, the founder of Cross-Examined, uh, him and Jorge, uh, host that ministry. is an excellent apologetics resource, and note that we don't agree with everything that is observed there, but we still recognize a good thing when we see it. And the reason why we, I can speak for myself at least, I would recommend this book to all of you is because, believe it or not, it was the first book as far as studying apologetics, being able to give reasonable defenses for the Christian faith, obviously with an atheist bent, but this can work in a variety of groups as well, is because it taught me how to learn information from people I disagree with. Now, that's a very interesting observation to be made about fellow Christians, but it's an important skill to learn because if you're going to learn to talk to people, you also have to learn to listen to people, and you can't talk or listen if you lack that ability, either in paper or in listening. If we 
isolate and insulate ourselves from any sort of input that would disagree with or challenge us, even things that we may have good reason to believe is false, but can't learn to find the kernel of truth, that bit of useful information, even if it's in a sea of garbage, then we aren't going to get anything out of the intended interactions we're supposed to be having with each other both in and outside of the church. And I think I don't have enough faith to be an atheist is an excellent resource, not just because it contains a lot of great information. It's very readable. The diagrams and outlines and funny pictures and such are very much able to communicate what they're trying to get across. And I think that the book is structured in a very uh, accessible, a very simple, and a very introductory way to some very complex and very advanced information. So when it comes to why you should be reading this book, obviously, uh, you know, I love my tabs. I don't mark up the books as often, but I like to keep track of where my references are. They're not as colorful as your Bible there. No, it's all on the same topic. Kind of, the oh. <laughs> book outlines itself with essentially a 12-point outline, which I'll read for you. Uh, the book's goal is set in these terms, that truth about reality is knowable, the opposite of true is false, it is true that the theistic God exists, and then gives evidence for that. If God exists, then miracles are possible. Miracles can be used to confirm a message from God. The New Testament is historically reliable. They give evidence for that. The New Testament says Jesus claimed to be God. Jesus claimed to be God was miraculously confirmed, and it notes the evidences provided. The conclusion, therefore, Jesus is God. Whatever Jesus, who is God teaches is true. Jesus taught that the Bible is the word of God, and therefore it is true that the Bible is the word of God, and that anything opposed to it would be false. So in laying out essentially what it's going to tell you, the book's goal is to lay down those points in, I think, a very, very sound way. Now note, some of the evidence is up for debate, and the individuals who wrote the book obviously have a more favorable view of it than I do. But what's interesting is that I'll at least grant them that much dignity because they're speaking to atheists. And this was also something that I benefited from learning this book, is learning how to play on a different team's field. Learning how to play by rules that aren't in your worldview, so to speak. Mm. Obviously, I come from a position that's very much truth as truth <laughs> should be taken at face value, where we don't live in a world that takes that for granted anymore. I've read the reasons why I have to trust the Bible, and I live in an environment where those things aren't widely known. It can be not just stumbling, but oftentimes confusing when I'm trying to take people seriously and at the same time expect them to be at the same level of education experience that I am. And this book really not only gave me an opportunity to learn more about other worldviews, but also a dose of humility, being able to treat people with enough dignity, even if they're not uh, rising up to the challenge of the conversation, so to speak. And a good example of how they demonstrated that was in the very early pages of the book, what they called the roadrunner tactic. This was, of course, quoted from Greg Kokel's book, Tactics, but they lay it out in a, a very, I guess, uh, humorous way. They uh, were giving a, back a story of experience where they were calling into a radio program. I won't uh, note the host or the individual, but when an individual clarified you know, whether something's true or not, they illustrated it with, there's no such thing as truth, and he 
frantically dialed the call and wanting to ask the question, hey, to the individual who said there's no such thing as truth, is that true? Is it true that there's no truth? Because the claim there is no truth claims to be true, but if that's true, then there wouldn't be no truth for that to be proven true. And Frank Turek, the uh, winsome and uh, very effective public speaker that he is in his seminars, oftentimes makes the illustration. I know that may give you intellectual constipation if you hear it too much, but it is a valid statement. These intellectual pursuits are summarized in the old cartoon show, and I'll read it for you. I'm pointing out self-defeating statements. Uh, this is from the book. Self-defeating statements are made routinely in our postmodern culture, and once you sharpen your ability to detect them, you'll become an absolutely fearless defender of truth. No doubt you've heard people say things like, all truth is relative, and there is no absolutes. Now you'll be armed to refute such silly arguments by simply revealing they don't meet their own criteria. In other words, by turning a self-defeating statement on itself, you can expose it for the nonsense that it is. We'll call this process of turning a self-defeating statement on himself the Roadrunner tactic because it reminds us of cartoon characters like Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote. He goes on to give a summary of the show. So when laying out this information, you can tell it's very conversational, it's very illustrative, down-to-earth, and mm -hmm. definitely meeting at the layman, but discussing things like rhetoric and philosophy. So very accessible. When they go into the evidence of the existence of God, one of their main things, and where the disagreements started to begin in the book, fortunately not too far in, was the cosmological argument and the surge evidence. Now, I wouldn't disagree with the cosmological argument. In fact, my ability to reference that from memory and for the benefit of all of you listening came from this book, but their evidence for it came to things that I would take or leave at piecemeal. The first evidence, the surge is the acronym, is the second law of thermodynamics. No contention there. It's emphasizing that the law of entropy shows nature is heading towards disorder rather than order. Things are breaking down rather than building up. The U in surge acrostic is that the universe is expanding. They grant the Big Bang cosmological theory and give the uh, Edwin Hubble Telescope's discovery of the red shift going into all those details as well as, interestingly enough, the Apollo 13 mission and how that is an excellent illustration of fine-tuning. And they basically build their case off of that, that the fact that energy is going out rather than in suggests that it had a starting point. And that's why they base the fact, one of the key details of Christianity, is that it lines up with our understanding of reality. The universe had a starting point. And note, I'm not building on the topic greater than that. They would because they would grant other aspects of it that I don't. But I'm willing to chew the meat, spit out the bones, and maybe even learn that some of those bones are meat. So that being said, the R in the surge acrostic is the radiation from the Big Bang building on that point from the Hubble telescope. The G is for great galaxy seeds. I do not have time to uh, explain that in detail, but it's essentially the scientific discoveries that emphasized the shift and how fast this is going out, being able to measure that back and so forth. And then finally, Einstein's theory of general relativity, that the whole E <coughs> equals MC squared, they go into the significance of all of that. There's a lot of excellent quotes that follow up from here as well as verified data, and they follow up very wisely in the argument for fine-tuning. I'd encourage you to read that all in your own time. Now, 
for the sake of your attention span, as well as my own lung capacity and giving you a chance to ask questions as well, they go into other topics like atheist objections. Well, time and chance will produce anything. You give nature enough time, it can and will produce a universe. That's a paraphrased quote from the late Stephen Hawking. They address that, I think, very eloquently. Uh, They are, to their credit, not willing to get off topic with controversial issues like ones that we would voice on this program. For example, in the book, and again, I'll quote this, this is how they deal with the age of the universe, whether it's, you know, quantillions of years old or the age that would we would conclude from the Bible. It says, we couldn't leave the discussion of evolution and creation without at least mentioning the age of the universe. Since there are several views on this topic, especially within Christian circles, we do not have the space to treat them all here, and then cites the uh, Baker Encyclopedia of Christian Apologetics and Systematic Theology, Volume 2. So the point being made is that even in a book I would disagree with on some of its premises and points, they're speaking to people who do grant these points and say, even if I play by your rules, I still win. I wouldn't take that approach, but I at least would appreciate the dose of humility and would encourage you all to do as well in saying, okay, I'll step outside of my worldview for a moment, live in your shoes, and see if I can find my way back to God. That's a good conversational tactic that we've discussed in our rhetoric lessons. Uh, Among all the other things that the book discussed, we can talk about the validity of miracles. Uh, Believe it or not, this book inspired me to... uh, I I was waiting to announce this maybe at a later date, but write my own. We'll give you guys updates as that unfolds. But noting that the existence of miracles is what separates the men from the boys as far as Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, as opposed to Hinduism, Buddhism, New Age, secular humanism, Mormonism, Wicca, Taoism, Confucianism, and Shinto. And they also define those in terms of their understanding of God's nature and the view of the universe, which is also a great apologetic If you're, say, for example, speaking to Hindus, this book would be a good resource because, according to the Hindu and some Buddhist sects uh, faith, they argue the universe is eternal. And if we can verify (laughs) scientifically that the universe had a definite starting point, then that's a good way to deal with some underlying assumptions. They also give excellent uh, diagrams and documentation for early church references to the gospel accounts. Uh, People would that would suggest that the Gospels were anonymous. They have a chapter dealing with that very effectively. Uh, Regarding the minimal facts argument, the argument that was popularized by the scholar Gary Hammerboss, um, you may know him from the Case for Christ film, they give an excellent outline of that argument, and I'll read that again to you. Much like they outline with the book, they note, A, these are atheist scholars would acknowledge these facts. These are good to know. That A, Jesus died by Roman crucifixion. Two, that he was buried, most likely in a private tomb. Three, soon afterwards, the disciples were discouraged, bereaved, and despondent, having lost hope. Four, Jesus' tomb was found empty soon after his atonement. The disciples, five, had experiences they believed were actual appearances of the risen Jesus. Six, due to these experiences, the disciples' lives were thoroughly transformed, and they were even willing to die for their belief. Seven, the proclamation of the resurrection took place very early from the beginning of church history. Eight, the disciples' public testimony and preaching of the resurrection took place in the city of Jerusalem where Jesus had been crucified and buried shortly before. Nine, the gospel message centered on the preaching of the death and resurrection of Jesus. 
10, Sunday was the primary day for gathering and worshiping. 11, James was the brother of Jesus and a skeptic before this time and was converted when he believed he saw the risen Jesus. And 12, just a few years later, Saul of Tarsus, Paul, became a Christian believer due to an experience that he also believed was an appearance of the risen Jesus. Now, you'll note the language, experience, they believed. Remember, they're outlining this as things that even atheist scholars will admit. If they say, you know, just Christian vernacular, Jesus rose from the dead, they wouldn't be atheists, they'd be Christians. But if you know what material you have to work with, you can argue for the historical fact of the resurrection and the crucifixion, by the way, which will come in handy if you're dealing with Muslims, regarding who you're talking to and what about in the, um, I guess, opportunities you have to give a reason for the hope that's within you. Uh, regarding the objections, Jesus never claimed to be God. They give a good outline and section uh, diagram, table 13.2, regarding the divine claims of Jesus, and that's come in very handily on this program. This is where I learned how to handle those things conversationally. They give an excellent outline of the Old and New Testament references and noting that they are one cohesive book, and as well the historical affirmations of the New Testament. But all that being said, understand that I don't agree with everything in this book, yet I learned from it. And that's the same experience that I'd like to encourage all of you to do. If you learn how to learn from people even that you disagree with on some things, maybe even important things, you're being equipped for a broader ministry. Because speaking to non-believers, there is certainly one thing that we disagree with them on, and that is the nature of God. So if you can learn to do that, I think this book is a fantastic opportunity for you to do so. It gives the information out in a very accessible way. And uh, again, even regarding the issues I disagree with them on, I wouldn't say it would cause us to divide fellowship. There are things that I've divided fellowship over Frank Turk's ministry of, over, but it's not anything discussed in this book. So let me know if you guys have any questions about this book further during the broadcast. And of course, uh, any links to their ministry, I wouldn't dissuade you from it. I just personally am distancing myself for other reasons. I'd encourage you all again to pick up the book. Once again, I do not have enough faith to be an atheist, and it is not just for ministering to atheists. It can also be an effective ministry tool if you're dealing with Hindus or Buddhists. It can be an incredible ministry if you're dealing with Muslims. And of course, it's a great resource in just shoring up your Christian faith. It's certainly come in handy on this broadcast. Great stuff. Cool. Thank you, Sean. Yeah. And by the way, we do expect you to have <laughs> read that book by next Thursday um, when we'll be giving our next book review. <laughs> and there and will the, be a pop quiz there in will the be comment a test. section. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you don't answer it, we're going to boot you right that's out. That's right. You're out. You're out of there for at least three weeks. That's the, <laughs> that's the time on there. Well, thank um, you, Sean. And Michael asked if it's on audiobook. Yes, it is available on audiobook. Cool. Yeah, I saw it on Amazon, but I'm sure it's... Uh, it's available on Audible as well. Oh, great. Awesome. Good stuff. Well, we have questions coming in. Um, thank you for that. Once again, you can send your questions in. We've got some time here left on the show, uh, about halfway through. I think uh, you finished a little early. Yeah, no, it's, yeah, I, I didn't mean anything by that. <laughs> I wasn't being passive aggressive. We have time left. Sure All you the are. time. Good time. Uh, question from Glenn here. Uh, if the sun and moon were created on the fourth day, how was time measured during the first, second, and third day? Uh, is the earth young or old? Thanks. I like how he tagged on the young and old. On young the and old. <laughs> young. Is it, yeah, is the earth young or old? I mean, the uh, the old earth, young earth is a huge, obviously, debate. Yeah. Um, but also how, if there wasn't sun and moon, how were the first couple of days 
in creation measured? No, it's, so. it's actually a really good question. So uh, when you go into Genesis chapter 1 in the creation account, uh, you'll notice that the first, as they mentioned, the first couple days in the creation account happen before the sun and the moon are created. So I believe some people have used that as evidence to suggest that Genesis 1 is not meant to be a historical account, mm. but instead kind of like a poetic rendition of what God did. Now, I, I do believe it's a poetic rendition, but that doesn't detract from the fact that I think it's a poetic rendition of what really happened. Uh, but So people who are more old earth, what that means is that they believe that since Genesis 1, and these would be uh, brothers in the face, like uh, John Lennox believes this, uh, um, I'm spacing on his name right now, but uh, <laughs> uh, Hugh Ross. Hugh Ross, that's Frank it. Turk. Hugh Ross, yeah. you, you got me. <laughs> Hugh Ross, Frank Turk. Uh, you there, taught me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so there, there are many people who, who are in the faith who believe in an old earth creation story, meaning that they look at the account as being metaphoric, and therefore it's not a literal six days that is being uh, accounted there, but instead it's just talking about, I guess you would call it like seasons of development, that God begins the creation, and depending on which person you're talking to, it's either God kind of winds up the creation and lets it go, mm. and then it's just an account of how the creation progressed, or you could have guys like John Lennox that actually believe that each day is God directly interfering with his creation. So you have him like creating something and then waiting time, and then as it develops, then God comes back in, develops something else, and then waits for it to progress and then mm. develops something else. So there, there are varieties of uh, Christian thought here. Me and Sean and, and Dave, as well as uh, the, the rest of the staff here at Calvary Christian Fellowship, we believe in a young earth creationist account, which means we take Genesis 1 pretty literally. We, mm -hmm. we believe that that is actually how God created things, that he did form the earth in a literal six-day period of time. And the reason why there are days mentioned before the sun and the moon are created is because it's kind of like a retroactive type of counting of time, meaning that God always had an intent of creating the sun and the moon, mm. and so he is accounting time even before their creation, which is a benefit of being outside of time. You don't really have to play by our natural chronological rules the way that you and I would have to, given our uh, limitations within this realm of existence. Yeah. So that would be how we would answer that, that the account given in Genesis chapter 1 is obviously given after God has already performed this task, and it's a human writing it and accounting what God did, and so it's acceptable and okay for him to retroactively attribute days before the sun and the moon are created, yeah. knowing that God is timeless and being outside of time, he's going to see things very differently. However, there, there was literal days happening even before the sun and the moon were created that yeah. are being accounted by God and being recognized and then, uh, obviously, after the sun and the moon are created, then the the normal chron chronology continues. Right. That's how we would answer it. I'm not really aware of anyone who would say, well, it was only the first three days of creation that took millions and billions of years. And then when the sun no. and the moon were created, then all of a sudden God started functioning off a 24-hour basis. I'm not really aware of that because, obviously— after the sun and the moon are created, then animals and plants are created. So yeah. uh, they, they couldn't possibly think that way. I think it's just a, a, a reason for them to say, no, this is a poetic account. We're not supposed to take any of it as being a literal 24-hour period of time. This yeah. is just a poetical or metaphorical account of how God created, but we're not to take it literally. That would be, uh, I believe, 
where the distinction would lie. Anything you'd like to add to that, Sean? You know, just clarifying if we're going to ask the question, because there was no sun or moon for they, them to measure mm-hmm. a 24-hour cycle day or lunar day, depending on which culture you're speaking to, yeah. the <clears throat> assumption is that God couldn't pace those things out, that mm-hmm. because the light sources that we measured them by weren't there, that somehow time functioned differently. It didn't, but it was measured by something more definitive once God no longer is the light source, was able to introduce these factors. We also can say, and this is a quote from, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, by the way, if you believe in a God big enough that could create the earth or the universe even from nothing, then a resurrection from the dead small potatoes. Likewise, if you believe in a God who could create, if you believe Genesis 1-1, the earth from nothing, then him doing it in an allotted period of time, even so brief as six days, is also small potatoes. That's our argument. And actually, uh, I, it occurred to me during one of your dad's sermons where he said uh, what made him curious was not that God took six days to create the universe, but why did it take him six days to create the universe? Why wasn't an instantaneous, right. boom, like, yeah. hey, bam, done. Well, Revelation and, 21 is uh, going to be instantaneous. So. Right. So, uh, you know, when his reason, which I agree with, is that God chose to stretch things out to show that he is a God who works in time. And mm-hmm. I, I really like that, meaning that he has processes that he functions in and he mm-hmm. works through uh, through time in order to show that he's available and that he is constant and that he is uh, working out his plan even when it takes chronology to do so. Mm-hmm. And Scott took that as a uh, as a sign of hope within our own life that God is going to take, like, why am I not just perfect? You know, right. why, why, why is God taking time to make me sanctified? Why can't I yeah. just be like Jesus right now? And Scott applied that and said, well, God took time in the creation of the universe to show you that he is the kind of God that is faithful, and yeah. he's faithfully working out his plan, but he works within time. Yeah. And so he is, he who began a good work in you will be faithfully completed until the day of Christ Jesus. That's Philippians 1.6. He's going to be faithful to accomplish his plan, whether it's his plan for your personal life or his plan for the universe, uh, given what Sean just said, the the plan for the end of the universe and the creation of a new one, right? All these things are happening according to his plan in time. So it, it gives us a, a way of understanding how God functioned even from the beginning. So I, I, I like yeah. that explanation. I think yeah. it's good. That's something early on when I became a Christian, I never thought about until a few years in, I started to realize that God has a personality, right. you know, like he has a character. Mm-hmm. And and it's cool when you start to see that, you know, and you get to like, oh, that's, that's so God. Yeah. You know, that's so how. <laughs> that's so God. That's so God. That's so how he does things. Remember when know. God did something that was so God. It was so, <laughs> yeah. it was so God, yeah. Yeah, but just say, I mean, all of we talk like old ladies. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Yes, I, I, I'm one of those with, with the three for sure. But, no, no, it's but a just, point, Yeah, man. just like, I mean, obviously we're not like God, but just like right, us, right. there's, you know, that was so Peter, that was so Sean, that was, you know, he has a character. Right. I like that too, that he, like an artist, you know, he he took that time, yeah. works his seasons. So the old, um, I don't think we touched on this, the the uh, the older thing is not only uh, linked to creation, mm-hmm. but um, evolution as well, right? A lot of people, it seems to be, if someone Some believes forms. in em- evolution, then there has to be an old earth, is that right? Yeah, it's yeah. granting aspects of the most popular form of evolution there are many specifically macroevolution, abiogenesis through means of natural selection 
say that five times fast. That's my favorite one. But yeah. <laughs> no, that, that's the school system's favorite one too, and you'll fire you if you don't agree. The point being made is just that though, because they have to make concessions to popular culture in order to be given a voice, oftentimes the most prolific proponents of old earth creationism are trying to get a Christian foot in the door into an atheist-dominated session. And so mm -hmm. unless they're willing to compromise on these things, William Lane Craig's the most well-known example. He feels that it's a necessary sacrifice for ministry, and because the evidence is sufficient in his mind that we've observed, therefore it's a uh, not a compromise for Scripture, but a new perspective on Scripture that modern mm -hmm. data support. So mm -hmm. it's basically, and again, not to demean him, I'd do it for other reasons, but not for this one. It's not in their mind. Worldly science, scripture, it's saying scripture is going to line up with what we can verify, and what we can verify is this. Therefore, I'm going to interpret the scripture in light of the facts. The facts are, according to their worldview, that the earth is billions of years old because there's no way for the speed of light and the nature of these things. Remember the SURGE acronym, these sort of ass. Uh, aspects and so forth that they have to make take an account for. The real issue, though, at the heart of it is, once again, there are other theories out there, and with just as much grounding, we've had guests on the program who've uh, uh, suggested a white hole theory and other cosmological uh, schematics and noting because of, interestingly enough, the same arguments they make, the gravity well of the mm. Earth, that based on <laughs> gravity that the perception and the speed of light, not the nature of the speed of light, but these sort of things and perceptions. Mm. Point being made is, this is well beyond <laughs> my pay grade to not only communicate oh eloquently, but sensibly. The point being made is this. There's so much information out there that we don't know, and too many people who won't admit that. Mm. When we can say definitively there are things we do know, the old earth and the young earth creationists agree on this. The resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. That's what makes you a Christian. Mm. Your handling of Genesis, to a point, it might uh, get iffy regarding the authority of Scripture, which is another non-negotiable, but most wouldn't take it so far as to say I'd question their salvation. So right. this is why we say it's a debated issue, not an apostate right. heresy yeah, issue. Right. Yeah, that's and that's good. I'm glad you said that. It's not something to dig your heels in. Yeah. Very good. You always bring it back to Jesus. That's one of the things I love. Make about it a habit. Show. Yeah. <laughs> Great. I love it. Well, Glenn, I hope that helps you out. Um, Answersingenesis.org, is it? It's a good resource. Yeah, they're a great resource for young earth creationism. And uh, Hugh Ross's website, I don't know it because I don't agree with him. Uh, look his name up. Uh, he is a very uh, well-spoken proponent of old earth creationism. If that's the side you go on, he would be the one to go. Mm, great. To read. Thanks for that. Well, Glenn, thanks again. Great, great question. Oh, and, and this this book as well, uh, proponent of polar creationism. <laughs> oh, yeah. Tell us about that book. Well, no, <laughs> we did that already. I got thank some you. notes prepared. <laughs> you have to rewind. Yes. Uh, thank you, Glenn. Once again, great question. Thank you for being part of, of the show. Uh, question from Isaac. Another just you know little you know side question here. Is our will free, or did it cost something to have free will? And what is meant by free will? Did it cost something for us to have free will? Yeah. If you're asking in the way I think, I really love the question. So I'm going to, I'm <laughs> yes. going to so let's say yes. I'm going are. to answer it in the way I think you're asking it. So 
uh, if you are, it's, it's a very sophisticated question because you're recognizing that there is a cost to free will. So yeah. uh, when God creates man, he has options in our creation, right? Prior to mankind in the physical realm, the angels are free agents, but uh, in the physical realm, the entirety of creation functions off of limitations and parameters that God places above it. So for instance, the the wind can only blow in the ways that God has designed it to blow. Uh, cows can only do things that are within their nature and their inherited predispositions. Uh, same with, you know, oceans and birds and anything you can mention, <laughs> right? Everything is functioning off of the predetermined parameters that God has set over them. So despite then, what Moana told us, right. water's going to flow with the tide, right. not against it. That's right. <laughs> so there's there's a way things have to be, and therefore that is the way it's going to go. Now, interestingly, me and Bo just did a podcast on this that I I think it's really fascinating with the chat GPT bots that are out there. I don't know if you guys have heard of them, but it's like this little thing that you can go onto and you can have a conversation with this bot. And I made a joke on the podcast that uh, this guy from the New York Times had a two-hour conversation with it, and the <laughs> bot started to fall in love with him yeah. and say, like, uh, I'm in love with you. He's like, well, you know, I have a wife. That marriage is a sham. It'll, it'll end, you know, call me Sydney. Let's go out. And it, it became very, very creepy very quickly. And people were like, oh, my gosh, the AI is self-aware. It's not. So uh, the AI functions in the same type of way that an ape or a dolphin or something like that functions, even though it's a more sophisticated type of intelligence than the the wind or the rain, it still functions within parameters. It's mm. not actually free in that uh, traditional sense. It mm. still has to function off of its given instinct. So it's not going to refuse to talk to somebody. It's exactly. built for that. Exactly. So the the, the AI robots, they're, they're actually not artificial intelligence. They're a learning or thinking computer that can only function within given parameters. So we're actually starting to think more about what freedom actually looks like, what free will actually looks like, given the fact that we're designing uh, computational advice, uh, uh, devices that mimic free will. Mm. They don't actually have it, but they mimic it. And so now this thought is on our mind. Now, what he's getting at in the question, again, if he's asking it in the way I think, is that to give or grant someone free will comes with problems because as God organizes everything, if he gives agency to anyone within his creation, now they have the capacity to mess it up, yeah. right? They have the capacity to undo what he has done. And if he wants to preserve that free will, he has to allow them to continuously do wrong things within his created order. Uh, a good example would actually be the Lego movie. Right? <laughs> so I'm, I'm sorry, if you, if you haven't seen it, I'm about to spoil it. Uh, so basically... Throughout the Lego movie, there's like this boss played by Will Ferrell who's seeking this piece de resistance, and then you figure out it's super glue, and then you figure out the whole movie is an allegory between a father and a son, where the father is trying to create an ordered universe in the Legos, and the son wants to create uh, freely. He wants to do what he can with the Legos, and so the dad is only wanting to build the stuff on the box, and then he wants to glue it down. And the son is wanting to make new things out of the given Lego pieces. And so it's it's actually a really good metaphor for a father-son dynamic mm -hmm. of what the father wants the son to be and what the son wants to be free to do. Yeah. Uh, maybe I'm reading too much into a foolish movie, <laughs> but that's how I've always watched it. Yeah. But that, that's a good example of like if, if you as a father give your son freedom within the home, you're giving them the ability to ruin or undo some of your work. 
And that is the cost. So someone has to bear the cost. Now, God ultimately takes the brunt of that cost in two ways. Number one, in the fact that once mankind fell, it actually spread like a virus into the rest of his created order. So now there is death. There is, uh, you know, hurricanes, typhoons, earthquakes, right? His once perfect world now bears the marks and the scars of our fall because he put us in charge of the earth. He said, fill the earth and subdue it, right? So as the head of the created universe, as the representation of God in the physical universe, we had the capacity to either participate with God's plan for order and for submission to him, or we had an opportunity to participate with Satan, the adversary, in order to reject God, to oppose him, and to create chaos, right? And that's what we chose to do. So that's one way that God suffered. And then the more literal way that he suffered is in order to preserve the free will of man without allowing our freedom to actually destroy the universe, which is what it was doing. He had to take the full brunt of our decision making Mm -hmm. because God could have just wiped out Adam and Eve. Be like, okay, well, I made you to be the head of the universe. That didn't go so hot. So you're done, right? And he could have just killed them and then just kept the universe as is without any autonomy or free will. And it would still be functioning according to his will and plan. You got to remember, God's perfect. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need the universe. So to choose Mm -hmm. to leave man on it, in order to preserve his perfect creation, he has to become man and he has to pay for our crime, to pay for our free decision to oppose him. And that's what he chooses to do. So C.S. Lewis famously put it this way. He says, God is the only being who creates his own parasites. Right. So like that's literally what he did. Like he created entities that would basically latch onto him and abuse him and cost him his life. And he did it willingly. So absolutely. There there was a massive cost to free will when God created agency within his order, both in the angelic realm as well as in the human domain. Right. Both falls, right? The fall of Satan in the angelic realm and the fall of man in the physical realm had ramifications and costs for God and his uh, original perfection that he made. So, uh, like I said, I really like the question. Anything you'd like to add to that? Cool. No, very good. Very good. Well, um, thank you, Isaac. Great question. Hope that helps you out. Um, It's funny, there was a a question from Neil about old and young earth theory, and he asked it before he realized we were on that question. He joined us late, so that's kind of cool. We're we're anticipating. That's right. We know. (laughs) Speaking of prophetic gifts... I had a question from Mac. Yes, we did. Are you are you familiar with Rick Pearson? Yeah, um, so Mac D asks, uh, have you heard of Rick Pearson, uh, Prophecy USA? Do you agree with what he talks about? So. Yeah, TCT. Um, short answer, no. The long answer, <laughs> no. Uh, well-intended though he may be, he and his uh, ministry team are essentially making an effort to study the Bible with the goal of showing the United States' role in the end times. We've stated many times in the broadcast that we do not believe that the United States will play any specific or named role during the specifically Great Tribulation period, because like any other nation on the earth, we'll just think the Antichrist is the greatest thing since sliced bread. I know things like the Megiddo Code try to present us very patriotically as the last holder out before uh, the second coming of Christ and so forth. I know that uh, even ministries we've recommended, uh, Terry Malone, believes that the United States is Mystery Babylon. All to its merit, but the point being made is this. When it comes to the Bible's plain and direct references to the 
region of North America that we call the United States, which, by the way, is not the only country in North America, uh, were surprisingly absent, much like the Hellenistic Empire, much like the British Empire, much like any world-dominating empire or great nation of significance. The temptation of a lot of people throughout the ages was to ask, well, why don't we see our name in here? And then they would approach the Bible, try to spiritualize it, and make the attempt to harmonize current world events with the end times and say, well, we're here, we're large and in charge, the Antichrist must be using us, or we must be one of the oppositions to the Antichrist because we're a Christian nation and so forth. You get the idea. So uh, TCT, Rick Pearson, all these individuals, one of many, he's not the only one to propose this, and I'm one of many who would oppose it. You can take or dismiss my opinion for what it's worth. But the point being made is we in this broadcast take a plain reading of Scripture as a priority over an obscure or symbolic reading into of Scripture based on current events. We call that newspaper eschatology. And because it uh, just doesn't pass direct muster, we're going to either file it away for future information. If it turns out the United States plays a role, maybe we're one of the ten kingdoms that the Antichrist will use. I don't know. But we don't know, therefore we won't say we do know. Rick Pearson and his ministry says that they do know, and I would disagree with that. So, All right. cool. Uh, yep. Cool. I, uh, yeah, I don't know who that is. Okay. <laughs> well, thank, thanks, Sean. Thank you, Mac D, for that question. And Mac, um, I had a question from you on our list on our um, questions we didn't get to. So, if you're there, we'll we'll jump to that today. Mac, the other day asked, uh, "Do you at times doubt your faith and worry um, about God's judgment, thinking you're saved, but in reality you are lost?" So do you guys ever get about of the doubts, as your dad would say? Um, and how do you deal with that? So I, I can start with me, and then you could you could share from your own perspective. Um, I, I I don't think I've ever really struggled too much with the idea that I am outside of God's grace. Uh, there have been a couple times within my life I just have a natural predisposition in uh, kind of my depression to believe that God doesn't like me, but I don't think I've ever had much of a belief that I'm going to go to hell because I've missed salvation. My doubt tends to manifest in actually atheistic thoughts because I I used to be an atheist. So Mm. when I go through a real struggle, uh, which hasn't happened in a while, but it does happen every now and then, what will happen is I'll start to doubt my faith in general. So I'll start to say, well, what if I'm wrong about God? What if there is no God? And I've kind of built my life around a lie. And uh, usually, just so you know, it comes when I'm tempted to do something that I know to be wrong. <laughs> you know, so usually it's it's when there's so something. So it's a convenience yeah, thing. Yeah, that there's a convenience, and that's uh, originally why I became an atheist is because I was struggling in sexual sin, and I just didn't well first of all I, I knew that what i was doing was wrong so i felt like a failure before god's eyes and it was more convenient for me to doubt the existence of god yeah. than to accept his presence as well as his uh his holiness in yeah. my life so more comfortable too it was more comfortable yeah. so that's where my mind goes and the way that i have a tendency to fight that uh when i'm in my depressed modes and i just feel like god doesn't like me uh my mind i think the reason why i still hold on to the idea i'm going to go to heaven is because my mind tends to go to suicidal thoughts. So I think that my brain tends to hold on to the concept that God still would allow me into heaven because it actually is more motivating to me to take my own life if I believe I would get entrance into heaven. 
if I believed that I was going to go to hell from taking my own life, I definitely wouldn't be tempted to do that. Mm. So that's that happens very rarely in my life, but when I get really low, it can. Uh, I do have verses in the Bible that I've underlined and I go to and I read. Psalm 42 is my favorite psalm in the entire Bible. I, I read it often when I go through depressive modes uh, because he talks to himself, and I like that. He says, why are you downcast, O my soul, mm. and why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him. And I, I minister that to myself and mm. remember that just because I feel a certain way, even if it's a very potent feeling, it doesn't make it real. And so I, I learned how to accept reality as opposed to my emotions. The, mm. When I figured out how to do that, I noticed that my depressive modes weren't near as powerful and they didn't last near as long. So mm. that was really cool. Mm. Um, the With the atheistic doubts, sometimes I have a tendency to go into study. So when I'm like, okay, well, there's no God, I challenge myself and I say, do you, do you really believe that there is no God? You know, what is your evidence for that? And that's yeah. just how my mind works. And so I challenge myself and sometimes I go into research mode and I study. Uh, other times I'm just like, I'm being stupid and I, you know, just got, once again, resist those thoughts and to the best of my ability. And I try to just continue to live my life. Mm. Uh, it just depends on how serious the thoughts are and how afflicting they are to my conscience. But, um, how about you, Sean? Yeah, I'll, I'll quote a well-known Christian speaker. You'd know him if I mentioned him, but there's a difference between a question and a doubt. And the difference is like you said, a willingness to believe there's an answer. When we don't believe there's an answer, that's a doubt. When we do believe there is an answer, that's called a mm. question. I've questioned my faith with the belief that there were answers, but to doubt is just to sink into this pit of despair and to say, there is no answer, I'm just left in this big question mark regarding eternity. So when it comes to the best answer for that, how to avoid doubts, like Peter said and like I've modeled as well, the best solution to a question is an answer. The best answer to a doubt is the willingness to believe there is one. Yeah. Cool. Very good. Thank you. Thank you both for sharing that. So, How about you, Dave? Honestly. Let's open you up here. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're moving on to the next question. Don't just be a passive observer. What's going on? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think for me, when it comes down to the very, you know, if I'm having doubts and it comes down to the very foundation of it, I just kind of say, well, what's the alternative? You know, maybe I'm wrong about details and things like that, but the alternative is we're here just because evolution and bang and and I look at myself and my eyes and my yeah. functions and I think there's just no way, you know, and then from there I start to build back up, well, if there is a God, he would have made himself known and he has and then it kind of builds back up to where I am today. So that kind of seems to be the, the way that I go um, if there's doubts there, but Elementary, dear Watson. Yes, indeed. And that's that's really how I, beca I mean, growing up, I always thought I, I felt there was a God that we were made, we were created, and that mm. that um, we weren't alone, that kind of thing. I was being watched, and I just just made more sense to me than, than we weren't, you know. And then uh, education came of who God is. So, um, so yeah, that's that's for me. I guess it can come in all different kind of ways. So, so MacD, I hope that helps you out. And it's okay, right? God can... He can bear our <laughs> he can bear our doubts. He can bear those. Like I said, I love what you said about you know the questions and um, uh, you know we can have those questions. God can bear that. Mm -hmm. And even in the Psalms, like you said, you know we can minister to ourselves and why are you downcast and all those things. So mm -hmm. um, thank you, Mac. Hope that you you were with us and got the answer to that question. I think it was a, a week ago that you asked that. So um, question from uh, Adonine. 
Uh, good evening, Adeni. passes. Adenine. Adeni. 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 Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, it's debatable. You're not here to. <laughs> you can't defend yourself. <laughs> yes. This I isn't scriptural things. We will butcher your name yeah. all we want. No. Addy. Um, good evening, pastors. Good evening to you as well, whatever your name may be and, and pronounced. Uh, what does it mean to hand someone over to Satan, as mentioned by Paul in First <laughs> Corinthians five five? Yeah, this is a scary verse. Yeah, yeah, we don't know, and I don't think we want. We don't to want know. to find out. Moving on. <laughs> yeah. So there's a there's a couple ways to interpret this. So the the passage in question, and actually Paul says this twice, uh, but the first one and the more uh, pressing one is in First Corinthians chapter five. So I'll give you kind of the easiest explanation, and then. I will allow your mind wander into terror of what it could possibly mean on a spiritual realm. So, Sounds great. Let's uh, do yeah. it. <laughs> uh, so the, the passage in question, as I said, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And what is going on in this passage is a guy is having sexual relations with his father's wife. Is it his stepmom? Is it his biological mother? We don't know. Doesn't I, matter. I don't, <laughs> care. I don't really want to know, to be honest. He says even the Gentiles are disgusted by it. And if you know anything about what the Gentiles were doing in Corinth, the yeah. bar is pretty high. Even right? they were like, we'll discuss them. Dude, yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> It'd be like if you're on the Las Vegas Strip and people are like, bro, you know, like, you know, you're probably doing something <laughs> that's just too far. Yeah, it's yeah. a little too far, even for that culture. So um, in verse three, he says, For I indeed, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged, as though I were present, him who has done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So the physical thing that Paul is telling them to do is to exercise judicial authority within the church body. So most people in America today don't realize this, but when Jesus set up his church, he didn't set up a country club, he didn't set up a meeting ground, he actually set up a community that has governmental authority within it. This is what he means when he says, what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, what you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He is saying, you guys actually have judicial authority to judge sin within your midst. Now, every government has to have some sort of authority to do that, but it's what is the bounds of that authority mm. and what are they able or gifted to be able to do. Jesus does not give the church the ability to give corporal punishment, for instance. We can't beat people who, do, who perform sins within the body. He doesn't give us that power. Uh, we cannot um, arrest people. I need to make a phone call. Yeah. <laughs> we can't arrest people for doing it. The only punishment that he gives, and this is in Matthew 18, just a couple chapters after he says that, and this is inherent in the binding and loosing chapter, is disfellowship. You have the ability to put someone out of your midst. You have the ability to say you're not in the church community. You have a way of coming back into it, which is repentance. But for in, if you can't see the wrongness that you're doing and you can't change your behavior, then you cannot associate with us. You are out of the church fellowship. Right. That's what binding and loosing means uh, historically, and that's what Jesus gave the church the authority to do. So when you come into a church— just recognize that. Like when I'm attending here, I'm right. giving authority to the elders of this church to look at my life and bind or loose me from this yeah. fellowship. That if I am committing sin, they have, it says in Hebrews chapter 12, that they have authority over my soul. Now, this is a, a huge boon and a benefit to us that we do not allow sin to pervade within our midst. It also gives protection for people who are in there. If you're here in the church and you're married, the church is supposed to step in and advocate for you within your marriage and to 
if your spouse is not listening to good and godly counsel, to actually put them out of the midst of the fellowship and to get your back, basically, to help you through that situation. They're there to advocate for kids. They're there to advocate for individuals within it. We have to have a protective authority. I think, you know, we've talked a lot about this this week. In the name of being loving or nice within the church, the church has advocated. We've get, given up our role in this yeah. in disciplining people. So that's the immediate thing that Paul is telling them to do, and that's yeah. what this means. Now, there is a spiritual component to it. When he says, I'm giving such one up to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, what does he mean? So on top of that, when you put some, when you disfellowship someone, Paul says that either this will accomplish that, or on top of putting him out of your fellowship, pray that Satan afflicts his flesh. What could that mean? As Sean said, I don't know. I don't want to know. It could mean that he's actually praying that Satan would, like in the book of Job, judge this guy Mm. by afflicting him, and hopefully the guy will come to his senses, much like the prodigal son. He'll Mm. recognize what I'm doing is bad and and repent. That could be what he's saying. It could be some sort of a a hardcore thing that the apostles are (laughs) given, some sort of authority that the apostles were given that we don't have today, and thank God we don't, but we're just not really sure. Yeah. Anything like to add to that, Sean? In no, 20 and, uh, yeah. uh, and in those 20 seconds, yeah. two questions. I can knock them out if you permit. Uh, yeah. Um, question if from Neil can. who wants to know Is Christophany just a form of typology? Uh, fancy terms defined on your own time. The answer is no. A typology is someone who isn't Christ, showing themes or characteristics in common with the real Christ. A Christophany is a literal appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament, someone who is God showing that he is God. Um, and then Yari wants to know, will time function different in new heaven than new earth? No, we're told that the while the sun and the moon isn't there to measure time, we'll use instead the tree of life and the fruits therein. The months described aren't different kinds of months than we're used to. It will be the new measurement. It will be the same thing we're used to, just by a different metric. Just think how many questions we get through if we answered them like that. <laughs> if only <laughs> all the questions fit that format. Not that we should, yeah. God bless you. Thank you for being part of the broadcast. We'll see you tomorrow. Same time, same places. God bless you guys. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.